Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, Garrett, be honest. You volunteered to read scripture just so you could take your mask off, didn't you? Thank you for your honesty. Before we study together this morning, let me mention two things that's, that's on my heart. Uh, one is that this hasn't been said yet since we've been reconvening back here for, I think, seven weeks or so. But uh, maybe I shouldn't have said this. I miss Mary Singleton. The one thing that, that we don't have is that wheelchair rolling up and sitting right there in the, in the middle of the aisle and Isabel boy showering her with attention once the services are over. And I, and I certainly use the word miss in a qualified way because I exult in where she is, and I know that we all do. But uh, wow, she, is, she leaves a hole in the church, somebody like that. And uh, I just miss her. I know you do as well. I don't want to say anything either to detract from uh, Jason's uh, very, very poignant comments about agape except to say that uh, agape has a very personal place in our lives as well held a meeting not that long ago when somebody who didn't know me was asking about our family situation do y'all have children of course we do we have four and uh, they're they're all boys except for the three girls (laughs) and and the one son blessed our lives through georgia agape and uh, he has been a blessing to us, and we hope we have been a blessing to him. Uh, if you know Luke, the only real challenge growing up was feeding that guy. Wow. But uh, Agape has been a blessing to us, and I hope that uh, we can continue to contribute in such a way that we will help them be able to serve others also in that way. Uh, one of the dangers I know of preaching is that we can oftentimes speak hyperbolically and talk as if The next lesson that we're going to to present is the most important lesson that's ever been presented in the history of mankind. In fact, I I remember talking to a preaching friend of mine uh, a few months ago who, kind of like I used to, would stand at the end of the morning service and say, here's what we're going to be talking about tonight. If you'll come back, uh, that's what we'll be looking at. And uh, said something along the lines of, "It's, it's probably going to be the most important lesson that you'll ever hear. And somebody jokingly said to him on the way out of the building that morning you mean just like this morning's was Um, but I do want to say that uh, the the impression that I have the impact that God's word has on my life and I'm sure on yours is one that is unsurpassed by any other influence Todd is exactly right it informs and defines everything that we do Every thought we think, every word we speak, every decision that we make day by day should be because we serve the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And uh, 
And so this morning, we're going to be talking about something from God's Word that I think is very relevant and very, very pertinent to our lives. And and it may not be the most important lesson that you'll ever hear, but I hope it will be a simple reminder that when Peter opened his second letter, in chapter 1, just three verses into that letter, he reminds us that God's Word supplies us, gives to us everything that we need in life and godliness. So God's word addresses every issue that we will ever confront or have to address in our lives, including the social unrest that's going on in our country and even around the world. And when I see things on on TV and and when I read the news and even watch some YouTube clips, do you know, I don't know what the right word there is, there's there's an entire segment of YouTube just devoted to road rage. You know, I mean, and it is absolutely incredible and depressing to see people act sometimes like animals in such an unkind fashion. And and I'm just saying that if, if we will take to heart what we're going to be thinking about and talking about for the next few moments... It certainly would revolutionize the way we look at other people and the way we treat other people and the way they treat us and those kinds of things that we see on the news about the atrocious ways that people are are treating others and being treated by others. That would all be addressed and remedied by the power of God's holy word. Because I I don't think it it is is an exaggeration to say that the, the, the real truth is that how we treat other people is going to have a a tremendous impact on our own spiritual growth and also on how well things go for us in life. I think that we will see that principle uh, throughout this this lesson this morning, that, that how our lives go is largely dependent upon our ability and our willingness to treat other people the way we want to be treated. It's just the golden rule all boiled down and, and plugged into our lives day by day. So, so let me begin but this morning by asking you, how do you treat other people? Are you kind and are you considerate? Do you speak and act with love in your heart? And do you regard other people as, as being valuable and special? Do you recognize that everyone around you, everybody seating in this auditorium, everybody on the streets of Montgomery, all around the world, some 7 billion people, everyone has an eternal soul that is just as valuable as yours and mine. And when we understand that, I think at a very fundamental level, it will change the way we act toward people and the way we speak to people and the way we treat people. The fact is you can't treat people poorly and expect to be blessed in your own life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some biblical examples of that as this lesson progresses. You can't be rude and inconsiderate and, you can, and then expect to live in victory. God just will not bless a life like that when we're treating other people in, in a poor fashion. The Bible says in places like 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15, see that none of you, and this is very similar to the Romans 12 passage that Garrett read a moment ago, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always aim to show kindness and seek to do good to one another and to everybody. I hope you noticed in the reading of that passage, the two key words that I see are aim and seek. That's just Paul telling us by inspiration that we need to be proactive in our effort day by day to treat people right. God is saying we need to, to think about, we need to deliberate on, we need to be on the lookout to share his mercy and his kindness and his goodness with people. People ought to be able to look at, at Christians, at children of God, and the way we treat people with kindness and consideration, and that should have an impression. It should make an impression on their hearts and lives. 
I hope you're saying amen on the inside because that's a fundamental lesson that I believe every one of us needs to to reappreciate every day of our lives. God is saying that we need to be proactive and, and we need to aim for kindness and seek to do good. In addition to that, we need to be kind to people. And here's the tough part, even when they don't deserve it. Oftentimes, that's the challenge, isn't it? And that is, it's easy, and and Jesus acknowledged this even in the Sermon on the Mount. If we're friendly to and wave at people who are friendly to and wave at us, then what profit have you? Even the publicans do the same, Jesus said. And so that's true even in our society 2,000 years later. We need to be kind to people. I might even add, especially when they don't deserve it, when they're not kind to us. We need to walk in love and be courteous even when somebody has been unkind to us. And I realize that's very easy for me to say on a beautiful Sunday morning. Very difficult to implement once we leave this church building and and we get out in traffic. You know what I'm talking about. But when we do that, again, God is is calling upon us to to live an an elevated kind of life, to be the ecclesia, the called out ones, and not to to think like, act like, and have the same attitudes as people in the world. And and when that co-worker walks by you and, and doesn't give you the time of day, then God expects you to go the extra mile and to at least try to be friendly to that person anyway. If you're on the phone and somebody speaks rudely to you, it's very easy for, for us to think, well, I'll just tell her off and I'll hang up. She doesn't know me. She'll never see me again. So this is my time to give, give her my best shot. But God expects us to be bigger and better than that. And when that checker at the grocery store jumps down your throat for no apparent reason, your initial response is to act rudely in return. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way the world acts and speaks. And that's easy, and anybody can do that. And I think that we would agree that most do. But God wants us to live by higher standards than that. And that really is my message to you this morning. There is a higher standard of conduct in terms of showing kindness and mercy to people that ought to characterize God's people. When no one else is acting kind in the room, when no one else is being considerate of the feelings of others, it ought to be God's people who set the standard for how we show kindness and why we do that, the motive behind it. Jesus taught us to love our enemies and to do good to those who spitefully use you. Again, the first part is challenging enough. But then he had to throw that second part in, those who spitefully use you. That's, just not, that's not just abuse, folks. That is abuse motivated by a spirit of spite. That is, they're doing it. Because they're trying to generate even more hard feelings, and and typically it works. And so the Lord is telling us we need to aim for kindness. And Paul wants us to know here in our text in Romans 12 that that, that evil, evil is never overcome by more evil. Please remember that. It doesn't matter if you're living in... in the the culture that that Paul dealt with during his ministry and, and during his lifetime, or whether we're talking about our modern world, you'll still never overcome evil with more evil. You do not fight fire with fire in any kind of civilized society and expect for a positive outcome. So if you mistreat people who are mistreating you, then you're obviously going to make matters worse. When you express anger at somebody who's angry with you, then you're just throwing more gasoline on the fire. Instead, Paul advised, we are to overcome, and you know the passage, it's not hard to read, it's not even difficult to understand, 
but it is mighty tough to apply. Paul says we are to overcome evil with good. Now, I think tacitly and cognitively we would all agree with that sentiment. But the question comes when the rubber hits the road. And that is, how do you do that? And that's what I want us to discuss for the next few minutes. So when somebody hurts you, the only way that you can overcome them, Paul says, is by by showing mercy. By even forgiving them, if such is called for. By doing what's right in any given situation. Keep taking the high road. And be kind and be courteous, even when people are not kind and courteous to you. Keep on walking in love and, and have a good attitude, no matter what others do. Because here is a central truth that I think permeates and is, 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 applies to everyone's life. You cannot control other people. If you need to write that down, please do. I think we, all of us who've lived long enough realize that, that is absolute, you cannot control other people. I'm even talking about husbands and wives. You can't make people do right. But here's a truth that is equally valid. You can control yourself. And so while you can't control how ugly other people may be in terms of their speech and conduct, you can control yourself. And that's why Paul's challenge here is to overcome evil with good. And that is the challenge. And I assure you that that God sees, and this is really the second part of my message today, that God sees when you're doing that. God sees when you take the high road. When you apply the greater, the Christian standard of of how we ought to be treating people, and he sees you going that extra mile to do what's right, and I believe he will reward you accordingly. Sometimes it'll be in this life, sometimes it'll be in the next, and sometimes it'll be in both. And I want to give you some, some biblical examples of people who are blessed in this life by taking the high road and doing what's right, and extending kindness and mercy to other people. And if you'll keep doing the right thing, you'll come out far ahead or where you would have been if you had decided to fight fire with fire. So in Romans 12, Paul tells us that God is our avenger, or some versions say vindicator. Did you notice that when Garrett read that? God is our avenger. That is, he is the one who will even the score. It's not up to us. Sometimes justice demands that people be arrested and convicted in court. We understand that. But we're not talking so much about criminal matters. We're talking about the civility with which we treat other people. That would never find its way into a courtroom, but nonetheless is is really the fabric of which our society has been created. And, and, And folks, I don't have to tell you, that fabric is tearing It is eroding around us. And the only answer is this book. The application of godly principles to the lives of people. And if we can get that message embedded in our own hearts and then we can begin to to act as if that message has been embedded in our hearts and it will regulate our conduct and our attitude toward others, then perhaps we can change the world because I think that's exactly what Jesus meant when he told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You will have or should have that permeating influence that can change society from the inside out. It's not going to be because of a revolution. It isn't even going to be because of a protest on the streets. It's going to be because the word of God has permeated our hearts and our lives to such a degree that it has changed everything about us. Now we serve, as Todd talked about a moment ago, now we serve King Jesus. 
He is the one who gets our ultimate allegiance, and he is the one who is going to determine the attitude with which I live every day. And so God is not going to, as our vindicator, as our avenger, he's not going to let us lose out in any given situation. Now, you may be thinking, when people mistreat you, and you either ignore it or you go the second mile and treat them kindly, despite the way they have been unkind to you, you may think, hey, I'm getting, I'm getting the short end of the stick here. But when all is said and done, God will make sure that you do not lose anything of true value. Are you hearing me, church? This is, this is so important. And he'll make sure that you get your just reward. Your responsibility in mind then is to remain calm and peaceful even when those around us are not. Let me say just a few words, if I can, about the nuts and the bolts of how to overcome evil with good. If somebody isn't treating you right, then you go out of your way to be kinder even kinder than usual to that person. If your husband, if your husband isn't serving God, and again, I remind you that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and, and Peter deals with this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So if you're a godly Christian wife this morning, and, and, and you're living with a husband who isn't serving God, don't go around beating him over the head with your Bible. Don't be preaching at him. Don't be nagging him. Don't be coercing him and, and, and trying to force him to come to church with you. No, just, just start being extra kind to him. Start showing your love for him in a, in a fresh and a kind way. And Peter said that will have an impact. The best chance, now there's no guarantees, but the best chance that you have of winning that non-Christian husband to the Lord is to live the Christian life faithfully and consistently before him and treat him right and that will make an impression on him. It should erode the barriers in his heart, Peter says. That's the best opportunity that we have. And, and that, I think, really can be magnified to include every human relationship. The best opportunity and the best chance, folks, that you and I have of winning our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers to the Lord is to demonstrate a kind and courteous and sweet disposition in everything we do. And I'm telling you what, in, in the world in which we live, that'll be a marked contrast, won't it? I, I, I've said this many times, but I'm going to re remind you of it again, uh, that I can, and, and most of you who've been children of God for any period of time can do the same thing. I can be around somebody for five minutes and tell whether they're a Christian or not, just by the way they talk. If, they're, if they're, you know, profanity is conspicuous by its absence, you think there's somebody, there's somebody there with some standards. They've got some values. And that's true. The world knows that as well. The Bible says, it's, and this is Romans 2 verse 4 if you want the Bible for it, it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. And that is so true. And if you'll be extra good and inordinately kind, before long God's goodness expressed through you will overcome the evil in any given situation. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great love chapter, love never fails. So if anybody had a right to return evil instead of, instead of good, it was Joseph. Think about Joseph. Uh, the last third of the book of Genesis is devoted to a biography of the, the life and the actions of that man Joseph. You remember him as, a, as that famed young man with a coat of many colors, which is really what started the animosity and the friction between Joseph and his brothers. And you may also remember that his brothers came to hate him. I mean, hate him. 
they were vitriolic toward him and, and so much that they threw him into a deep pit and they were going to kill him. But as, as one commentator says, in quotes, out of the goodness of their hearts, they decided not to kill him. We can make some money out of this proposition, so they sold him into slavery. And you know that boiled down, years went by, and Joseph experienced all, all sorts of troubles and heartaches. I mean, we tend, I think, sometimes to look at Joseph's life and act as if the sun always shone on him and there were never any clouds in his No, man, that guy went through some heartache. He had some trouble in his life. And after 13 years of being in prison for a crime that he did not even commit, you may remember that God providentially promoted him to the second highest position in the political hierarchy of Egypt. And Joseph was in charge of the food supply providentially when a famine hit the land. And his brothers traveled to Egypt all the way from their homeland, and they were hoping to get provisions for their families in Egypt having no idea that the brother that they had sold into slavery was now second in command. He was the vice president, basically, of Egypt. At first, they didn't recognize Joseph because so much time had passed. And after a period of time, you know the biblical record says that Joseph finally said, don't you know who I am? I'm Joseph, your brother. I'm the one, if I need to jog your memory, that you threw into a pit. I'm the one you tried to kill. I'm the brother that you sold into slavery. I'm that Joseph. Can you imagine what was going through the minds of his brothers at that moment? Can you imagine the confusion and the conflict that was taking place? Imagine the fear that probably gripped their hearts because this was Joseph's opportunity to pay back his brothers for the years, I mean the years of pain and suffering that those hard-hearted brothers had caused him. And now the tables were turned and their lives were in Joseph's hands and he literally had the power of life and death over them at that moment. So he could have, he could have ordered them killed. He, he had that authority. Or he could have, at the very least, had them imprisoned for the rest of their lives. But what he said was, and I think that's what catches the attention of every conscientious Bible student. What he said to, to his brothers was, hey, don't be afraid. I'm not going to harm you. I, I, I'm going to do good to you. And I'm going to give you all the food that you need for your families, and then some. Even before the second mile was ever articulated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Joseph was doing it. He said, I'm going to give you everything you need, and then some. Is it any wonder, and, and I, this is not a rhetorical question, folks, is it any wonder that Joseph was so blessed by God? What a wonderful heart! What a tremendous spirit! And you may be thinking, as I have, when I've read that account, I wish I could be like that. We can. We can. If we'll just demonstrate the same kind of faith, and we'll learn to treat people with courtesy and mercy and compassion like Joseph did. Joseph knew how to extend mercy, and, and he knew how to treat people right. Even when they did not deserve it. And I don't even think I have to say that about his brother. They didn't deserve anything that Joseph gave them. If you want to talk about justice, they did deserve to be thrown into prison or maybe even capital punishment for all that they had done to Joseph. But with equal clarity, with equal clarity, the Bible says in, in the great love chapter, love doesn't hold a grudge. Love, true love, does not harbor unforgiveness. Have you noticed that if you hold a grudge... And if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, 
The one that it hurts the most is you. The person that you are holding the grudge against may be oblivious to that fact. They may not even know that you have hard feelings against them. But every day and every night when you pillow your head, you have that bitterness in your heart that continues to grow until it's been resolved. And I mean resolved with God's protocol. You may have people in your life who've done you some great wrong and you feel like that you have every right to be angry and bitter. And technically, you would be right about that. You may feel as though your whole life has been stolen away by by somebody who's mistreated you or maybe who has deceived you. But if if you'll choose to let go of your grudge and forgive them, Paul says, with certainty born of inspiration, then you can overcome the evil that they have brought into your life with good. Now again, simple to say, hard to apply. And if you do that, if you do that, church, God will bless you in a powerful way. And he will honor you for taking the high road. And he will reward you. And he will help to make those wrongs right. You see, when you can bless your worst enemies and do good to those who have used you or abused you, that's when God will take that evil and turn around and turn it and, and make it into good. In fact, that's what Joseph said to his brothers, wasn't it? You meant it for evil, but God turned it around and used it for good because God can do that. And he's good at his job. He is always doing that. He's doing that in your life and mine too if we will keep up with our end of the bargain and determine that we're going to treat people the way God would have us to treat them. So no matter what you've gone through, no matter who has hurt you, no matter whose fault it might be, listen to me. You need to let it go. You need to let it go. And you need to know what it's like to be able to take a full breath again without feeling hatred and anger and and bitterness towards someone. And I know that's not what you're seeing played out on your TV screens right now. And that's why a message like this is so important. God's word deals with what we're seeing on our news every evening. So don't try to get even. Don't, don't hold a grudge. Don't try to get that person back. God says, show mercy and aim for kindness and seek to do good every day of your life. And you may be thinking, that's just not fair. And you would be exactly right about that. No, it's not. But we also need to remember that life isn't fair. We have to remember that God is the one who is keeping score. Again, he is the avenger, the vindicator in the text that we read this morning. And so when you you bless your enemies, you'll never lose. God will always make it up to you. We also need to go the extra mile. Let me say a word about that. And I want to give you an Old Testament illustration of that. In the Old Testament, Abraham had to pack up his family and head toward a better land. That's not all bad. Because the major reason for that relocation program in Abraham's life and the life of his family and even his extended family was because they'd grown so much. God had had blessed them and they had prospered and, and, and their, ho- their flocks and their herds were, uh, had gotten so large that they didn't have any place where they could really you know, even feed them. And so they needed to look for some place that was bigger and better and more prosperous. And so that's what they did. And the Bible says Abraham moved all of his flocks and his herds and his family, even his extended family members. And they traveled for months and finally made it to, their, to, to the new land. And after living there for a while, they discovered, guess what? God's blessing us here too. And, and our flocks are growing, our family is growing, and our herds are growing, and we, we've outgrown the land here. 
And so we've got a, we've got a problem. It's not a problem with a capital P, but it's one that needs to be addressed and dealt with. And, and so they discovered that the portion of land where they settled wasn't able to support them all. And, and have enough food and water for all the people and all their flocks and all their herds. And it was at that, that point. And here's the, why I'm sharing this illustration with you during this valuable time this morning. That Abraham said to his nephew, to, to Lot, he said, we need to split up. You know, you need to go your way and find a portion of land that, uh, that you can live on and, and continue to grow your family and your livestock. And, and I'll do the same. Now, and what he said was, and it's a matter of biblical record, you choose whichever part of the land that you would like, and I, here's the kind part, I will take whatever's left over. It takes a real man to say that, doesn't it? Notice how kind Abraham was to his nephew. So Lot looked around, and the Bible says he saw a beautiful valley with luscious green pastures and, and rolling hills and green pastures Wonderful ponds where the, the animals could, could water. And he said, Abraham, that right there is what I want. That's where my part of the, of the family will settle. And Abraham, his response was not very long, but basically he said, fine, go and be blessed. And Abraham could have said, this is the not fair part of, of the proposition. Abraham could have said, Lot, you're not going to have that land. That's the best land. I've done all the work. I'm the one who left home on, on faith and a prayer and a promise, and I'm the one who's taken all the risks. And I need to remind you that God spoke to me and not to you, and so I should get the choice piece of land as where to settle. But Abraham didn't do any of that, as you well know, having read the biblical account. He was bigger than that, and he knew, I really believe that Abraham knew that God would make it up to him. But I'm also sure that, you know, after Abraham realized what was left over for him, he had to have been a little disappointed, don't you think? I mean, his portion that he accepted after Lot had chosen the choice piece of property was arid and, and barren and, and desolate wasteland. I mean, the Bible doesn't pull any punches when it, in, it, in the record. It, it tells us what kind of land it was that, that Abraham wound up with. And, and think of it. Abraham had traveled a long distance. He'd gone to great effort in search of a better land, in search of a better life. And now, primarily because of his generous and kind heart, he did not have to give Lot first choice, but he did. And because of that generosity and that kindness of heart, he was relegated to living on what was the scruffiest part of the land. And I'm pretty sure he must have thought, God, why do people always take advantage of my goodness? Why does it seem like I always get the short end of the stick? That boy would not have had anything if I'd not given it to him. I mean, Abraham could easily have defaulted to that kind of mindset. Let's take that and translate that into 2020. Maybe you feel that you're the one who's doing all the giving in some situation. May it be at work, it may more likely be in your family life. Maybe you're the parent of an ungrateful child. Maybe you feel right now in your experience that ungrateful child is redundant. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And you're giving and giving and providing for that child, and there is no sense of gratitude and certainly no expression of it. Maybe your former spouse is taking advantage of you in a divorce settlement. Possibly your company is talking about downsizing. After you've given that company the best years of your life. 
Maybe you're the one that's always going the extra mile. Maybe you're always the one who's, who's the peacemaker in the family. Every family has one, and maybe you're it. And because people know that you're kind and that you're generous and that you're friendly, they will take advantage of you and they will not appreciate you, and you may be stewing in those juices right now. I imagine in an audience this size, there's several who could say, yeah, you just described me and my situation. Let me tell you something. Jehovah God sees your integrity. Did you hear that? God sees your integrity. Nothing that you do goes unnoticed by an all-seeing God. He's in charge of, of keeping the records. He will reward you in due time, and, and that's on his timetable and not ours. And that's certainly what he did for Abraham. In essence, God told Abraham, because you preferred your brothers, because you treated your relatives kindly, because you went the extra mile to do what's right, I am not going to give you just a small portion of land. That's the way this whole thing turned out. I'm going to give you an abundant blessing. In fact, I'm going to give you thousands and thousands of acres, literally miles and miles of land. As far as you can see, that's going to be your property. The closest I can come to envisioning and comprehending what that's like is my one time that I spent several days, I you know, had to lay over in Dallas-Fort Worth a couple of times at their airport. That's not really being in Texas, is it? But when my older sister lived there for a few years, we went to visit her, and I was helping a nephew to, uh, to move. So we drove to Lubbock, and my brother-in-law said, now this is the beginning of so-and-so's property. Forty-five minutes later, he would go, this is the other side of so-and-so's property. <laughs> Forty-five minutes later. That's what Abraham was experiencing. God said, I'm going I'm to give you the land, and you can just go ahead and drive down the stakes as far as you can see. It's going to be yours. And then in the New Testament, Paul's inspired advice to the Galatian brothers and sisters was, and I think this is the tough part for all of us, folks. It's easy when we really screw up our courage and determine to be kind to people. We can do that a day at a time, can't we? But Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 9, do not grow weary in well-doing. And I think sometimes the world just wears on us. And we forget our commitment to show the kindness and the mercy and the grace and the generosity of our Savior to other people who are in our lives. God is, is a just God, and he sees not just what, what you're doing, folks. He sees why you're doing it. God judges our motives as well as our actions. That's what I'm saying. And because of your unselfishness, because you prefer others, because you're always aiming for kindness... One day, God will say to you, as he did to Abraham, as far as, as you can see, I'm going to give it to you. Sometimes when we're good to people and we go that extra mile, we have a tendency to think, I'm just letting people walk all over me. I'm letting them take advantage of me. And they're taking what rightfully belongs to me. And Abraham could easily have thought that in terms of his relationship and his arrangement with Lot. But that's when you have to say, nobody's taking anything from me. This is crucial. We're almost through. So hang on to this. Nobody is taking anything from me. I am giving it voluntarily of my own volition. I am freely giving it to them. There's a difference. I am blessing them on purpose, knowing that God will make it up to me. And then finally, think for a moment, if you will, about the biblical story of Ruth. I love this story. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, was an older woman who had just lost her husband. So she's a brand new widow. And Ruth and another daughter-in-law named uh, Orpha, 
I tend to be dyslexic. And every time I read that in the Bible, I want to call her Oprah. Orpha was her name. And they lived with Naomi because guess what? Their husbands had also just died. I mean, life was tough back then on husbands. And when Naomi lost her husband and she told those young women, listen, I'm going to go back to my homeland and, and why don't you ladies do the same thing? And you just get on with your lives. And Orpha took Ruth's advice. She went her own way. But Ruth could not find it in herself to do that. And she said, Naomi, I am not going to leave you here alone. You need somebody to take care of you. And I'm going to watch after you, and I'm going to stay close to you. This may sound a little bit like stalking, but it's not, because it was done with the right motive. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. You remember that beautiful passage, because we sometimes use it in wedding ceremonies. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. I'm going to help you to the end of your life, was her commitment. And, and when Naomi and Ruth moved to Naomi's homeland, they had no provision there. They didn't have any money. They didn't even have anything to eat. And so each day, the Bible says that Ruth would go out into the wheat fields and follow behind the reapers who were harvesting the crop. She picked up any leftover wheat and, and the grain that had fallen into the ground, and, and she was finding just a little bit here and a little bit there. And then at night, she and, and Naomi would fix those up, and, and they would make a meal out of it. And, and it wasn't much, but the women were somehow able to survive doing that. And here's the kicker. In fact, here's the payoff. God saw. Remember what I said a moment ago about an all-seeing God sees everything you do and why you do it. God, God saw Ruth out there working in the fields, trying to take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, because of the love and the kindness in her heart. And God knew that Ruth could have taken care only of herself. She could have selfishly lived out her own life and looked out for number one, and that would be her only concern. God knew she had nothing to gain by being concerned about that older woman. And because of her kindness and because of her good-heartedness, God instructed a man by the name of Boaz, who happened to be the one who owned all of those fields where she, Ruth had been working and picking up the leftover grain, he instructed Boaz to help her out. And he said, Boaz, tell your workers to leave handfuls of wheat and handfuls of grain behind for Ruth to be able to pick up. And now when Ruth went out into the fields, she gathered up more than she could handle. That is... She was, bottom line, blessed in abundance. Because of her kindness and generosity, because of her determination and commitment that I am not going to leave my beloved mother-in-law behind, not even her mother, her mother-in-law. She says, I'm going to take care of her till she dies. God saw that and he blessed her in a powerful way. Let me tell you good people something this morning. God sees your acts of kindness and mercy as well. And when you're kind to people, when you go around doing good to people, God will arrange it providentially, not miraculously, providentially for others to leave behind handfuls of things for you to enjoy. You'll find a handful of blessing over here and a handful of blessing over there. You'll find providential favors over there, maybe an unexpected promotion over there. Everywhere you go, you'll discover the providential blessings of God lying in your path because they've been left there by God himself. Is this a message we need? Do we need to hear what God's word says about showing kindness and mercy? Unless I've misread the room and the society in which I live, 
We need this desperately. But the only difference it will make in society and in Montgomery, Alabama, is if you and I leave this place this morning determined that it will make a difference in our lives, in our hearts, in our attitudes towards others, even when people aren't kind to us. I think it would be an understatement to say that the kindest and most generous gift ever given was when Jesus hung on that old rugged cross and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's because of the blood of Jesus this morning that we extend this invitation, not offer it. God did that. But we extend that same invitation that he gave when he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And there's some people in this audience this morning that need that kind of spiritual, psychological, emotional rest from the world in which we live, and Jesus affords that to you. If you allow your faith in him to commit you to repenting, being sorry of, and then quitting your past sins, determine that you're going to turn your back on that way of life and live the way Jesus would have you to live, confess his precious name, and be baptized into him and allow his blood to wash away every one of your sins. And and do that now while we stand and while we sing.